I'm Ece Özdemiroğlu. I'm Sabina Apet. And I'm Jill Duggan. And this is Join the Dots. I'm an environmental economist. Sabina is an environmental scientist. Jill is an expert in climate and energy policy. We've spent our careers giving advice about the environment, and we know choices are never straightforward. Here in each show, we explore the issues surrounding an everyday choice to help you decide what's best for your health, wallet, and our planet. Welcome to the first of two episodes that Join the Dots are going to do about food. The next episode is going to look at what you eat and its impacts on the environment, on society and on our health. And this episode is going to look at food security, how we store and provide for ourselves at times of uncertainty. I think there is an increasing awareness that some of the things we face in this world cause disruption to the chains of supply So this episode will look at what food security is and how households can manage strategies to deal with this in a sensible and rational way rather than in a panicky way. So Sabina, what is food security? Well, Jill, if you look at the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, or FAO's definition, food security exists when all people at all times have physical and economic access to sufficient, safe, and nutritious food to meet their dietary needs and food preferences for an active and healthy life. Gosh, that's a mouthful, isn't it? I'm glad you read that out really slowly, (laughs) because (laughs) it's all... Lots of useful words, but yeah, no wonder we feel alienated from experts. So what does it look like in practice? Well, that's a very aspirational definition. You'll see an implication there of a global equitable world that is not very close to what we have right now. If you Google the term food security because you're trying to drill down for more local or specific issues, the first several pages of HITS address the developing world places such as sub-Saharan Africa. And certainly the amount and quality of food available to such places is much less than in richer countries. Okay, that pause implies that you actually looked through those first several pages of Google search and found other things, but... Absolutely, that's... Could... <laughs> I thought I thought most of us stopped in the first page of Google search. <laughs> uh, well, you know, um, often I'm many pages in before I find what I'm looking for. That's a good tip. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to look for specific issues and not what Google thinks I might want. <laughs> so, so Sabina, I mean, as you rightly say, we have traditionally thought about food security and, and lack of food as something that affects developing countries. But I think that it can happen here and there's still a potential for a no-deal Brexit here that it may be something that we need to consider more often. Yeah, I think in recent times, um, even in richer countries, the lockdowns, shortages and economic shocks as a result of COVID have exposed household food security concerns. I think most people I know are having long conversations about how they're going to secure a food supply for their household or the household of a vulnerable loved one. I know early in the first lockdown, We spent many sleepless nights trying to figure out how my mother-in-law 
in a remote village would have food and we were certainly not alone. Closed shops, bare shelves, shortages and price shocks, as well as outright gouging. People had challenges getting deliveries. And to be honest, funding cuts and job losses also have really focused the minds of previously food-secure households. Uh, I think we realize that what we take for granted in an abundant and connected world is more fragile than we thought. Mm. I have to come in with food banks on that because this worry about where your next meal is going to come from is a daily stress for many people, um, regardless of whether we have pandemic. I, I get really upset when food banks are presented as if they're a good thing when actually, in my opinion, they shouldn't have to exist. And I think they are set to increase. Um, there's Trussell Trust who organises lots of the food banks and they say there's already been a 60% increase in people needing food aid in the UK compared to autumn 2019. And over half the people who visited a food bank this summer had never needed it before. We really have to be mindful of that when we are looking at the household coping mechanisms that we don't all have the same ability to cope. I think you're not alone in that. A number of food activists have pointed out the problems with food banks other than being a failure of our governments and society to provide the most fundamental requirements in an equitable way. They tend not to provide what we know are the most healthful or culturally appropriate foods. There's this attitude that feeding people whatever we happen to have access and the tins we're willing to drop in a tub rather than ensuring that everybody has access to fresh and healthful and culturally appropriate food. But beyond that issue... With Brexit looming and details of any trade deal still uncertain, there are dire predictions about not only supply shocks, but drastic price increases for food. And do we kind of know the scale of what we're facing? I'm kind of interested to know, we're all slightly worried about what will happen with the no-deal Brexit, for example. And we know that the UK is not alone in facing some of these challenges. We just happen to have a potential cliff edge in front of us. But what is the scale of interdependence? Well, I've checked this one out and the statistics really surprised me. The simple fact that UK imports around half of its food. You might think, you know, OK, we know bananas don't grow in the UK. They are imported. But half the food and half of that import comes from the EU. So even at times where there was no Brexit, I would have thought this was a risky situation. Because not only that you're importing half your food over which you have no control. Well, at least in the EU, we had common regulations. But also, importing food means exporting impacts of producing and processing food. If you're running a business, being dependent on someone else for half of your supplies is a very risky situation to be. It's particularly extreme here in the UK, but what I found surprising was statistics on imported food, even in countries where they grew their own. And we have become quite accustomed to a shopping cart that is sourced globally. And we take a lot for granted 
eating what we want when we want it and cheaply assumes that a system is very connected. A global trade seeks a constant supply of the cheapest possible ingredients that we want to see on our table without being bothered by how it gets there. So there is a term called the food system, right? The food system is a complex web of activities involving production, processing, transport, and consumption of food. And it's, in most cases, a global system. So issues include the governance and economics of food, its regulation, its sustainability, the degree to which we waste food, how food production affects the natural environment, and the impact of food on individual and population health. Embedded in that are equity and fairness concerns, what might be an ideal food system if you're going to spend what you want to get what you want might be a much more broken food system for people that have fewer resources. I guess one of the reasons why we want to tackle this food issue in Join the Dots is those food choices have implications that we're probably not thinking about all the time. And if we were more aware of those implications, we might make different choices. So these coping strategies is not things that we need to think about under pandemic conditions, and then we can forget about them when we're not in a pandemic anymore, because those implications continue. So what kind of coping strategies are we going to talk about today? So when one talks about strategies, what we're trying to do is look at scenarios to make our food supply and our approaches to obtaining food more resilient. Now, resilience thinking seeks to understand and manage risks to a food system or another system and the economic and social shocks that might occur in their interplays in ways that make you more adaptable to change. So the first strategy one can look at is storing food to smooth out the edges of supply. Now, storing shelf-stable items such as beans, rice, dried vegetables, milk, eggs, canned items are all storable. Also, frozen food mm. is good and packaged food. They all have their pros and cons. Mm. Yeah, and I think the empty shelves stories in the first lockdown was more about these dry and storable goods, whereas the fresh food aisles were actually full of food. And I remember that people representing federations of supermarkets and telling people, you don't need to store, there is plenty of supply in the supply chain, but we can't deal with spikes of demand. We just cannot get the goods from A to B, from warehouse to the store quick enough. But one of the things, if you're storing, you've got to be able to buy in the first place. And we briefly touched on food banks, but one of the problems that we're facing at the moment, people losing their jobs, not having the resources to be able to to store, and, and actually, frankly, quite often not having the space to store as well. This is yeah. a big issue. Yeah. Like a number of the strategies we're talking about, they assume you have the resources. Now, I think we need to talk about the difference also between storing in anticipation of shocks and hoarding when supplies are already limited. Within somebody's resources, putting aside a little bit every week, if you can, is storing in anticipation for resilience. 
clearing the shelves when other people are in the queue waiting for supply is hoarding. And, you know, we can have long discussions about personal care versus public good and how one balances that. But you're right. Um, You have to have the space. You have to have the money. And if you're worried about the next meal, storing for next month is not feasible. Mm. And probably it's not necessary as well. We had businesses changing their focus in the first lockdown. The companies that were supplying restaurant trade, for example, they started supplying households. But you needed to have access to them. You know, you need to have internet connection. You need to know where to look. You need to know how to search. So these things are not perfect substitutes to the traditional ways of buying food. And I think one of the things that we also learned, flour and yeast were very hard to come by. And I think it wasn't that people didn't have enough bread to eat. They wanted to bake their own because it gave them something to do. Well, there was another side to that, Jill, to do with how companies sell and distribute food. Flour and yeast is usually sold in large bags in bulk to the trade and restaurants. And Flour is not something that the UK is not self-sufficient in. Did you hear my lovely little double negative there? (laughs) So it's something the UK is self-sufficient in. However, the 15 kilogram bags that are delivered to restaurants could not quickly be converted to the pound bags. Mm. So we had a perfect storm there. You could go online and buy a 15-kilogram bag of flour. I did that, and then I shared. We had a nice little sharing network, so we were buying things in bulk and bartering with each other. That's a lovely strategy, isn't it? Makes you feel all warm inside. (laughs) (laughs) You have to assume your neighbors eat like you. My um, bulk (laughs) buying of teeny, none of my neighbors were interested in. Flour, on the other hand, they were. Yeah. And then, of course, we tried growing and I I managed to grow two butternut squash this year. And given the time and attention that I put into them, each of them should be valued at around 100 pounds, I think. (laughs) Yeah, but they're priceless, Jill. (laughs) They're priceless. And they, they did taste slightly different. I'm not saying better, but different. But how much of that is the strategy that we can adopt? Well, you know, in 1943, 20 million gardens were producing up to 41 percent of all the vegetable produce that was consumed by the nation. But one in eight households in Britain has no access to a private or shared garden. Mm. And that is really talking about recreation. Fewer had access to growing space. I know we have more access to recreational grounds than grounds that we can actually grow food. Advocates of Grow Your Own would argue that anybody can put a pot on a windowsill or on a balcony. Anybody can grow sprouts on a kitchen counter, though I found the seeds and the accessories are not cheap. Others have allotments, but they're oversubscribed. So no, it's not a cure-all. If food security continues as a concern, I think there will need to be systemic changes. There are a large number of schools that have gardens and are teaching children to grow food. But as Jill and I learned, it's not trivial, especially if you don't have endless time. And if you, like me, are unwilling to use pesticides, you don't just toss seeds out and get food. 
-hmm. Our grandparents that were growing victory gardens didn't necessarily convince us to plant vegetables later. In fact, I think a lot of those skills were dropped as people were relieved that we'd moved on. And some of that was rejected as a reminder of the past. Mm -hmm. Also, if you're trying to grow most of your food, you have to deal with abundance versus shortages. There's something called the hungry gap, a time of year where almost nothing is ripe or ready, which brings us back to storage, canning and drying Mm. and things to spread out your harvest if you're lucky enough to grow food. Okay, so we can't store everything and many of us can't grow what we need and even those of us who've got space to grow it maybe aren't very good at growing what we need partly because of the climate, I would say. But what other strategies are there? Should we be eating differently? Well, before we discuss should we be eating differently, what are we eating? Well, it's interesting that four crops provide half of the world's food calories, wheat, rice, maize, and soybean. And then these are all very important to what we feed the animals and the meat we eat. Also, they're a big part of the commercial food system, but we're very dependent on very few Mm -hmm. crops. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because we've got the saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket, but we don't seem to mind out of millions of types of plants that we can have. We're only relying on four for half of our food. I mean, that's amazing. And that's not only amazing in terms of we're increasing our risk or insecurity, but also those four plants are taking the same nutrients from the soils that they're planted in. It's really bad, isn't it, not to have variety at that level of production. How about the variety at the household? That's very household dependent. If you eat a standard meat-rich diet, the bulk of your calories are coming from these. Even if you eat our recommended much healthier, more plant-based variety of fruits and vegetables, legumes and grains, we only tend to eat a handful of the thousands of edible plants there are, and often just a couple varieties of those, which make mm-hmm. not just our household food resilience, but global food resilience very vulnerable. Those varieties are very vulnerable, not just to import challenges, but also disease challenges. A lot of people I know eat very much the same thing week on week. I have friends that have the same menu every week or very small variations on a theme. makes you very vulnerable to food shocks. The more you source your food broadly, the more you learn to eat and cook different things, the more resilient your food strategy is. And one would argue the healthier. But there's a conflict here, because as the variety of what you cook increases, does it mean that you are eating out of season? Does it mean that you're not eating locally available food and you're sourcing your food from global? Is there a happy medium there? There are different approaches. Um, One can try to eat locally. In regions like this, that means eating quite seasonally. It's a lot different in places like California, where a lot more 
foods are grown. I have found, for example, when I try to eat English asparagus in season, which is just phenomenally good, it's significantly more expensive than when I buy the stuff from Peru year round. So again, whether we're growing it or our region is, the choices are limited in our climate. You have a word for this, actually. Is it locavore? Yeah, that's a fairly new term. Hmm. Locavore. Um, Barbara Kingsolver wrote a book called Animal Vegetable Miracle, where she talked about she and her family trying to eat locally for about a year, mm -hmm. which posed a lot of challenges. You're going to find the reference to that book on our website, by the way. But perhaps we can talk about the nutritional value of food and relationship of that to price. And we all know that processed foods tend to be cheaper. Why is that when natural versions of food is more nutritious? Processed food is cheaper because it's bulk produced, bulk bought. They have long shelf life. So all the things that cut cost is valued. Therefore, it's reflected in the price. But everything from the naturally grown foods that is good for the health is not valued as much. And the high costs are reflected in the high price. Well, part of this reflects the corporate capture and the overproduction of foods. Ultra-processed foods are very much vehicles for selling excess of those key crops we talked about. They're ways of packaging corn syrup and those products that result from incentives to grow large volumes of calories rather than nutritional food. Going back to the household choice, to weigh the price of processed foods with the nutritional value you get from the natural alternatives as much as you're able to do that. And strategies to do that to some extent include some seasonal eating, eating roots and squash in the autumn and winter, eating the cabbage crops more than we do, you know, and eating more local tomatoes in the summer while perhaps eating tinned tomatoes out of season. Mm. But food miles can be a poor measure of all the impacts. I was particularly enjoying Sabina's tomato-tomato um, <laughs> translation for us as well. Tomatoes, tomatoes. It's tomato. Is it? I don't know. Domates. I think I use both. It's, it's domates in Turkish. In lots of languages, actually, tomato is a very similar name. But they're a big crop in Turkey. And I think my husband loves the tomatoes in Turkey. Um, whereas, to be honest here, they don't taste of anything to me. But anyway, what I found is that I, I wanted to look at this food miles thing, right? Because food miles is, for some people, the main criterion by which they choose which foods to buy. They want to eat locally. And I wondered how important a criterion it really is. And I think if you're going to listen to this podcast, you realize that one criterion is never enough to make a choice. So I looked at tomatoes that are produced in UK versus is tomatoes that are produced in Spain. Now, before I did that, I thought that it might be better to get tomatoes from Spain because there's more sunshine there, right? Um, that it might, they may taste better, but also they may need less energy to produce tomatoes in Spain than maintaining greenhouses in the UK because to allow all year round tomato supply, 
the UK needs to grow tomatoes in greenhouses. So when you're comparing tomatoes from UK versus Spain, you need to look at the impacts during production, the impacts during packaging and the impacts during transport. Food miles look at transport only. But for production, what would you look at? So the quality of soil, is it good soil or do they need to use a lot of fertilizers with its environmental impacts? If the tomatoes are grown in greenhouses, what kind of greenhouses are they? So now I thought that in Spain, tomatoes are grown on the outside. But to get three, four harvests a year, they also need greenhouses, right? Even in the southern Spain, where most of the UK tomatoes come from, they still need to build greenhouses. Now, what do you build your greenhouses out of is very important. If it is glass and metal, they can stay up for a long time and produce a lot of crops. If it is from plastic sheets, they need to be replaced every two to three years. So then what happens to that plastic sheeting? It gets thrown away and it probably not disposed of responsibly. How do you heat the greenhouses? Now, Spain might do this better because the sun is there most of the time in southern Spain. And in UK, if you were heating it out of fossil fuels, you would have very high impact. But I think they're beginning to heat the greenhouses in UK using renewable energy or sometimes even using combined heat and power. We mentioned this in the episode about heating homes, that they use the electricity to sell to the local grid and they pump the heat that's produced whilst producing electricity into the greenhouses. In a traditional power station, that heat would just be cooled off. So that's another interesting element to look at. Water, you know, water that you need to irrigate the tomato plants. I'm not going to bombard you with numbers about that because I don't want to say you must always buy UK tomatoes or you must always buy Spanish tomatoes. But where do you get information about this from? There are many different types of food labels. They at best tell you the country of origin. Now, shopping more and more online because of lockdown, it is very hard on supermarket websites to find origin information. In some supermarkets, that information doesn't even exist in the online catalogs. At best, you just have the name of the country. You have no information as to how that tomato is produced. A policy recommendation is that we need better labeling systems. The whole question of labels brings us to another strategy, and that is wasting less food. And information is critical there and quite problematic. Food is labeled very often with use-by or best-before labels that have no standards, are put on by industry. Really? And are quite confusing to consumers. Best before, it's not a safety or a regulatory thing. It's something industry decides to put on. It encourages people to throw away and buy more foods. It might be appropriate for a piece of cabbage, although I would argue I can look at a cabbage and decide whether it's good or not. It's totally inappropriate when you see best before on salt that's thousands of years old <laughs> and bottled water, but it's causing people to throw away and repurchase 
vast volumes of food. That's different than a use-by label that might be on meats mm. about how long something is safe or fresh. Mm. But mm. in general, studies have shown the public is quite unclear and there need to be standards and guidance on this. We waste an enormous amount of food because of this issue and also because of the economic incentives for buying in bulk, mm. the buy one, get one free or bog offs and bulk discounts induce waste. Often it seems cheaper, but we didn't need three of something and we end up throwing away some of it. It also is unfair to those that can't afford to buy in bulk, either because they don't have the money or because they live alone. Mm. So to reduce waste, we need to standardize and educate about labels. I've done some digging around about those labels because we have a lot of discussions in my household about how strictly we follow those labels. I used to be that as soon as the date has passed, I would throw away the food and Neil, um, revelation, Neil the Sandman is my husband. But I know, shock horror. He says, why can't you just smell and look at the food? I'm not a very good cook, so I don't. But there is a, actually a government organization called RAP, W-R-A-P, and we'll put links to that on our website. And they have this uh, website, Love Food, Hate Waste. And they have a lot of advice on what labels should look like in the future. There's reams and reams of downloadable labels there and better information to households, understanding when things might be well past the healthy use-by date and when not. So I, I strongly recommend people to visit those websites. Food waste statistics are shocking, and not only at the household level. I think it's something like the 25% of food is wasted after it leaves the farm. But in the US, 70% of food is lost before it leaves the farm gate. Can you believe all that energy, all those environmental impacts that go in producing food, 70% is lost before it leaves the farm. Do we know what that is? Because they sometimes overproduce, so there's no buyers, it doesn't get bought. There might be simply that there's not enough labour when the produce is ready to be harvested imperfections in the production. Sellers think customers want all the apples to look the same. Or it might be that in some countries, the production is subsidized in the season before. So you plant the thing that people don't want to buy this year. It's, it's shocking, isn't it? Aesthetics are a really big issue. If you look at orange growers in Spain, there's a, a disease that just causes some aesthetically displeasing scale on the outside of an orange. And if an orange has more than three of these spots, it can no longer be sold for market and they essentially give it for free to the juice industry, mm. which then drives, of course, heavy use of pesticides to avoid a scale that's causing just an aesthetic problem rather than addressing the fact that it doesn't really matter if your orange skin is perfect. Mm. But even in the household, part of the problem is that the way we cook and eat and that we're not good at using leftover foods or even leftover cooked meals. Um, we're very concerned about them going bad and don't always understand or we just want something new and different the next day. 
Yeah, so I think RAP has a statistic that says we waste six and a half million tons of food every year and four and a half million of it is edible. And we're not talking eggshells or chicken bones. We mean the last few bites from your plate or the bread crusts or potato peelings. I just said potato feelings, um, potato peelings, all stuff which could have been transformed into something delicious. So, the, you know, what can we do about this? Well, the reason why RAP has got all this information about labelling I just mentioned is because they think better labelling would change consumer household behaviour so much that two millions of that six and a half million tonne we waste every day could be avoided. So a third. A third of waste could be avoided if food labels are improved. Don't wait for the companies to improve those labels, people. Go and visit our website, then go to the RAP website itself and inform yourself to reduce your household's food waste. That will save you money and that would also help you eat better. I want to go back to something Sabina said earlier about diversity in what we eat. I studied home economics and I was dreadful. <laughs> and actually, in terms of diversity, because I used to forget to bring the ingredients, I cooked scones every week because that's all they had the ingredients <laughs> for. But I know that my mum used to sit down and actually work out what meals there were going to be every day of the week. And they were usually pretty much the same kind of pattern week on week, rather than leading it to what's in the cupboard, let's just eat that. Whereas actually, if we're taught in school, one, how to cook and two, how to plan what we eat to get the nutritional needs covered and to increase the diversity, that could be a way of actually reducing food waste as well. Then perhaps we get away from some of the issues that we have. I think that's a very good point, Jill. I'm slowly seeing more articles online about how to make five meals out of a chicken and things like that. So not only planning, but also understanding how to cook with what remains. So understanding how to cook food rather than follow recipes. So yes, plan your meals, but also say, if I have A, B, and C in the cupboard, how do I do homestyle master chef and make a meal from it? Yeah. For those of you who haven't seen Master Chef, they're given three or four random ingredients and have to come mm -hmm. up with a recipe. Occasionally, we have a parsnip, a potato, and some stock, and you have to figure out what to do with it. Oh, my God. I wish I knew this in the first lockdown. We had tons of parsnip. Mm, I love <laughs> because, a parsnip. Yeah, I know, yeah. but after a while. Um, but yeah, rather than say, oh, I know after a while, I'm just going to go and buy something that comes from a million miles away or whatever. It's on me to learn how to make different things with parsnip rather than the delicious parsnip soup I have perfected um, <laughs> over the spring. So we've talked today a lot about what food security is, what the vulnerabilities of the systems are, and some of the strategies that we can as individuals use from storing food to growing food where we can to trying to resist some of the incentives that supermarkets put before us, thinking about what we eat, trying to have a more diverse diet, thinking about learning how to cook in a way that our parents were probably better at than we were in terms of calculating how much food each of us need and buying the right amount in the first place. When we don't do that, when we succumb to some of these incentives and, and offers, we end up creating a dis 
disgusting amount of food waste that you know we can do a lot to address and i think you know for me going to that rap website and seeing how we can cut a third of the food waste that we're currently creating would be a sort of first step and we really recognize that contrary to what we want to do this has been a bit uk focused but food security is a global issue and climate change and pandemics affect people everywhere we scratched the surface on a lot of these things so we are going to have another episode on food and we'll be talking more about what we eat and also about access to food for the moment think about what you eat don't panic and there's plenty you can do to make yourself more resilient to some of the food shocks that we're going to face thanks for listening and thanks to the rest of the team tara uigur on podcast production and neil mckeown on sound and music if you enjoyed this look out for our upcoming episodes and all other info on our website jointhedotspodcast.com <laughs>